0: Greetings to the brightest audience in the country, and welcome to Theology Thursday. I'm Nicole McBurney. Every weekday, we bring you the news of the day, the culture, and science from a Christian worldview. But today, join me and Pastor Bob Enyart as we explore the source of our Christian worldview, the Bible. Galatians, chapter 3, verse 10. And we, uh, in this verse, Paul quotes from Deuteronomy, chapter 27. So I think I'm going to uh, bounce back there as soon as I read the verse. And we'll read it out of Deuteronomy also. Paul spends a lot of time, as you all know by now, talking about the law, the law and grace. And it goes right back to that tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden and the tree of life. Because the alternative is between a set of rules or God. That's our alternative. And so Paul is trying to keep us focused on God and living by God and not by a set of rules. So he writes, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. All right? So Paul says, Hey, there's a curse. In fact, the law itself, he says, tells us, that you are cursed if you do not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law. Now, when we go back to Deuteronomy and read that same quote, it's a little bit different. It's not... I mean, it doesn't appear as a verbatim quote as some of them do. So we'll read it back in Deuteronomy. It's pretty similar, but it's a little bit different. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. Moses is writing... And he's recording that which the Lord would have him write. Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 26. Cursed, cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law. Cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law. Now, in a moment, we'll talk about the two being a little bit different. And what does that imply? But first... Just think this through. When, when this was written in the book of Deuteronomy, and Deutero is like twice, the second, and namas is the law, Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. So this is like a recap. Moses gave us the five books of the law, and a lot of the law is in Exodus and Leviticus. Numbers is mostly uh, stories and anecdotes and some genealogies, and Deuteronomy recaps the law again. This is uh, occurring right before they enter the promised land. So, guys, we're getting ready to go into the promised land. Don't blow it. Remember all these things. And there's a list of curses here. I think it's, uh, I think it's 12 curses. Uh, cursed is the person who you know, uh, uncovers his father's nakedness, his father's bed, if you recall that term. From Genesis. Uh, Cursed is the person who lies with an animal. Uh, Cursed is the person who moves his neighbor's landmark. Uh, God is really concerned about private property. It's in the Ten Commandments Thou shalt not steal. But uh, liberals, socialists, communists want to not only move the landmark, they want to just throw the landmark away and take everybody's land and uh, let the, you know, the the leaders of the country, the political leaders, control everyone's land. So God hates that stuff. Well, anyone, anyway, when when it says here, cursed is the one who does not confirm all the words of this law, in other words, confirm them by your life, uh, that was intended to be a great motivational statement, an incentive to keep the law. You're cursed if you don't do all these things. So get charged up. You better do it. Well, when Paul quotes it, it's the exact opposite. It's an incentive to avoid the law. Paul says, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So he's using it as a disincentive. Stay away from the law. And that's the two perspectives. When you're under the law, you are strongly urged, commanded, keep the law, do the law. You have to, otherwise you're cursed. And when you're under grace and not the law, it's the same threat. You're cursed if you don't do all the things of the law, so don't do any of them. Don't even get started. Don't even try. Because you can't do it. Now, of course, there was forgiveness for them when they failed, But they were motivated to do it. Now, I'd like to uh, sort of take a brief detour and talk about the fact that the verses are just a little bit different. If you were just reading and not uh, looking for these details, you'd just most likely pass it over. But Paul writes, Cursed is everyone who does not do these things. And in Deuteronomy, it says, Cursed is the one who does not do these things. That's not a big deal it's a small difference. Paul writes, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all these things. And in Deuteronomy, it says, Cursed is is the the one who does not confirm all the words of this law. And Paul says, uh, who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law. See, these little differences. And it's interesting to note that Paul, he's sort of paraphrasing the Hebrew, but he didn't come up with these words on his own. And I'm not implying that the Holy Spirit inspired him to write these particular words. Of course, the Holy Spirit inspired the whole book. And this book of Galatians is as God wanted it to be. But where did Paul get these exact words to write? Well, he was copying them either from memory or from a document in front of him. They're from the Septuagint. Now, the Septuagint, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, almost completely, a little bit of Aramaic, in, in Daniel, I think, exclusively, but uh, in that only a part of it. The vast, almost the entire Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Well, uh, it's hard to pin down the date exactly, but about 285 B.C., Uh, it was determined that it'd be very valuable to have a Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures because Greek had become the international language, much like English is today, like French was the language of diplomacy a century ago, a couple centuries ago. So they began to translate the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek, and we have today, you could go to a bookstore and buy the Septuagint which has come down to us through the centuries, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. Because most people couldn't speak Hebrew. People who lived in Egypt or in the island of Cyprus or in southern Italy, in the Roman Empire, in Athens, they didn't speak Hebrew. And there was an interest to get these scriptures to them. Uh, They had an interest in learning about this uh, nation of Israel and their God and their religion. So the Bible, the Old Testament, was now available to the world in Greek. And there are some quotes, and this is one, in the New Testament where they follow the Greek Septuagint verbatim, although they sort of paraphrase the Hebrew. And that's just of interest because right now in America there's a a holy war going on and elsewhere about what version of the Bible you should use. And in some, uh, I, I notice uh, at least one smile in the room. Uh, if, if you're not involved in that debate, it's pretty much irrelevant. But if you are, you know that people really go to the wall over this. This is big. Uh, people have been kicked out of churches because of the version of the Bible that they brought in. And there are books out like the New Age, ver- New Age versions of the Bible and God, when when the apostles wrote, when Luke wrote, when these men wrote the New Testament, they had available the Hebrew text. They could have quoted it verbatim, but they did not. At times, sometimes they just paraphrased, and other times they instead quoted the Greek Septuagint. Now, the Greek Septuagint is not a perfect translation of the Hebrew to Greek. Some places, it's very good. Other places, it's sort of a loose paraphrase. And in many places, it differs. So why would God have Paul quote from the Mosaic Law and not quote from the Hebrew, but quote from the Septuagint? Why would he do that? Why would he quote from a, an inferior text? In fact, Jesus himself often at times in the Gospels, when he's quoting, we can tell he's not quoting the Hebrew, he's quoting the Septuagint. Now, why would that be? It'd be like if Jesus were here today, he might quote from the uh, the NIV. He might quote from the NIV or maybe from the Living Bible. A lot of Christians would say, no, not from the Living Bible. Uh, Maybe he would. And perhaps I'll, I'll give an example or two, But, um, and we'll think this through. Uh, words are very important to God because words convey meaning. When you change the words, the meaning could be affected. But that doesn't always happen. Um, sometimes uh, there, there can be many, many different ways to state an idea and you'll get the idea across correctly regardless of, which specific word you use. If Jesus Jesus were here today, there's a chance he might say, love God and love your neighbor. Uh, And we'd say, well, he's quoting himself. But he spoke in Greek and Hebrew 2,000 years ago, so he'd be quoting himself, only translating into another language. Just like when Jesus spoke in Greek uh, when he was on earth, he's automatically doing a translation from the Hebrew when he's quoting the Old Testament. But what if he was here? Do you think it might be possible that Jesus might say, or if Paul was here, and if he was writing an inspired letter, that he might write, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Is it conceivable he might write that? Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. I think it is conceivable that he might write that. Although that's not what Jesus said. That's a reverse of what Jesus said. And in fact, Jesus said the negation. He said, do not do unto others as you would not have them do unto you. And and he also said, as you would have others do unto you, so do unto them. See, so in the Bible, there's like the reverse of the way we say it. And the way we say it I think, is perfectly acceptable. Uh, it's, it's more familiar to us. Uh, in fact, when Christians are talking or witnessing or in any context and they're going to restate the golden rule, they almost never state it as it appears in the Bible. We almost always say, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So would Jesus pick up on that? Would Paul pick up on that? I think there's a real possibility that they would. But someone who's extremely uptight could object and say, you didn't quote it right. You got it wrong. You got it backwards. You inversed it. You got the negative. It was a positive or vice versa. So I think that's being too petty. And that's what I believe is happening with these this holy war over the Bible versions. Uh, Jesus would have been condemned according to the current standards uh, for quoting from the Septuagint. He would not have been allowed to preach a sermon in many churches if he said going in, well, I'm going to quote from the Septuagint. They'd say, oh, no, you're not. Not in this church. So um, I would uh, you know, like to encourage people to... Uh, and I know this is affecting only a, a couple people that I know of in this group. But to bring some reason to this debate... I use the New King James. Uh, I know many of you do. Some bring other versions, the NIV, NASB. Um, The the version of the Bible, the modern versions, almost all, come from a set of manuscripts that are, for the most part, very old, but very, very erratic. They contradict not only themselves, they're called the minority texts. There's like uh, that, a text called uh, From Alexandria, Egypt, and a text from the Vatican. And these are very old texts of the Bible, but they have tremendous disagreements with one another. And then there's a body of manuscripts, about 5,000 or so, that really have tremendous agreement dating way back to the second century, some segments and some books, Second, then they become more numerous in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries. But those uh, thousands of manuscripts, they have a tremendous amount of agreement with one another. And the couple manuscripts in the minority text, they have tremendous disagreement with the majority and between themselves. So the King James and the New King James are pretty much the only two major translations that for the most part rely on the majority text. Uh, They rely on a specific uh, aspect or view of those texts called the Textus Receptus. But uh, all the other modern versions come from just those couple minority texts that really have oftentimes gross errors, like the Gospel of Mark ends with the apostles being in great fear. And that seems like a strange way to end one of the Gospels. And it leaves off the last uh, handful of verses. Uh, the story of Jesus with the woman at the well in John chapter 8 is left out. Uh, many passages about Christ, verses that are strong for the deity of Christ and, influ- and affect our understanding of who he is eternally, a lot of those are, are watered down. A lot of verses about Christ's blood are watered down in these minority texts. So I think it's a real good idea to have a Bible that represents the majority of texts that are in agreement. That's why I generally encourage people to go with the King James or especially the New King James because it's more readable. But if somebody comes to the Bible study or to our church, and they have a new American Standard Bible or a new English Bible or a re- reversed, uh, revised version, we are not going to condemn them or say, you can't study here. So, anyway, uh, just wanted to take this verse as an opportunity to have that discussion. All right, so Paul in verse 10 gives this warning cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Verse eleven. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Now this is one of Paul's favorite Old Testament verses, Habakkuk two, verse four. He likes this one about as much as he likes uh, that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness which is in Genesis 15:6. Those two verses are the passages that he sort of hangs his theological hat on. And Paul wants to get out of the Old Testament a foundation, a scriptural argument for his gospel of grace. So he goes to before circumcision with Abraham, and that's his one favorite verse. And then his second favorite verse is in Habakkuk that the just shall live by faith. And in the context of the Old Testament law, of course the just shall live by faith. And by the law. But there's no need to repeat that every time under the law. But since this was a verse where they didn't add and by the law right away, Paul is all excited. All right, here's a verse that really helps make my point. So he's eager to use these verses Uh, by the inspiration of God. Yet the law is not of faith. Now, that is a very powerful and blunt statement. The law is not of faith. It's not of faith because in Paul's gospel, which Christ gave him, faith means it's something you can't do. In uh, In Romans, we looked at the verse, I believe, last week, where Paul said, Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law and of works, that you have to do all these good works. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Christ came down from heaven and He rose from the dead. So if you believe that He rose from the dead, you'll be saved. In other words, the righteousness of faith, you can't do anything. You can't do anything because faith is not doing, but it's believing and trusting. So the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. That's in Paul's gospel's perspective, by grace. The law is not of faith because the law is of works. But when you were, say, Israel was under the covenant of law, then the law for them was of faith. Because them, faith is, for them, faith is believing in God. And doing all the works of the law. But for us, faith is, you take the believing of God and you bump out the doing the works of the law. And for Paul, faith is mutually exclusive of anything else. It's the beginning and end of our salvation. There's nothing we can add to it. Not only of our salvation, but the mechanism we need to live our daily lives. In verse 13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And, we, and back in chapter 8 of the plot, when we were going through that law and grace, uh, we talked about this, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden and the offense or the curse that happened at the tree. And then in the Mosaic Law, God saying, Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And then Jesus Christ becoming a curse for us, having hung on a tree. God did all that to tie it all together, uh, tie up all the loose ends, so that we could understand, one, what he did, and two, that truly this book was written by God. Because... Dozens of authors over many centuries, over 15 centuries, could not have put, or even longer than that, could not have put this all together. Such a brilliant story. So intricate. Where the details at at the beginning match the details at the end and those in the middle in a perfect way. It's just awesome. So, uh, this Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us, God cannot just wink at sin and say, well, that's okay, I forgive you, don't do it again, and make believe everything's all right. You, you can't do that. When people that you interact with, when they harm you in some way, if they steal from you, uh, it's, it's not healthy to say, well, that's okay, just don't do it again. Well, you have to pay back. You have to pay a penalty. And if you're repentant, I'll forgive you, but it has to be paid back. And God is put in the position where what needs to be paid back? Well, man's inhumanity to man. The wickedness, uh, the harm that men do to one another and to themselves, including all manner of uh, cheating and lying and assaults and rape and murder, Um, all that needs to be forgiven. Wow, how do you do that? Those Many of those crimes deserve death. Well, the only way is that there be a death. But the death that they deserve is eternal separation from God. Because God is holy, and it wouldn't do to have wicked people living in heaven with God forever. Well, you have wicked people, but they said they're sorry. Now they're in heaven. Well, there's still uh, that taint of wickedness, because all they did was say they're sorry. And that doesn't cut it. Restitution has to be made. So, when, so these wicked people really need to be apart from God eternally. That's the result of their sin. So how can God deal with that if he wants us to be able to be with him in heaven? Well, he has to pay an eternal debt, an eternal death. Well, we could die forever and go to hell eternally and that would pay it. But that wouldn't get us to heaven. So he had Christ who has eternal worth, eternal value. He existed forever through eternity past and will exist through eternity future. So he's so valuable that if he would agree to become a curse, if he would die, if he would take on our sins and pay our debt for us, then that would satisfy the demands of justice. And that's what Jesus did. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. All right, I'd like to read 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, just to reinforce this. Paul writes, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In other words, he was made sin so that we might be made righteous. He was made sin so we might be made righteous. Paul ends that verse by mentioning, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And for us, uh, that speaks of righteousness, redemption. We're redeemed because of what happened to Jesus. When Peter mentions this in Acts chapter five, verse thirty, it he just it seems to have a different uh, connotation to it. Peter said to the Jews, he said, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. And early on, the twelve apostles, when they talked about Christ's death and resurrection, you don't really find them saying, this is our salvation, Christ's death, His blood, and His resurrection. You don't really find that them saying that. For the most part, they refer to Christ's death as a source of condemnation and guilt. You are guilty because you murdered the Son of God. His blood is on your hands. That's how they used the crucifixion. The cross, uh, not as an encouragement, this is paid for our sins, but as a source of guilt, which it was that also. So, um, I thank God that He continued to reveal more and more in the Bible, and we now know clearly that, uh, you know, the implications of Christ's death and what He accomplished for us. Now let's go, uh, okay, verse 14. That the blessing of Abraham, this happened to Christ, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Now, Paul's going to get into this topic in the next few verses, so we should pretty much just continue to see where he's headed. But he wants to make the point that this religion that God set out through Abraham was not just for Israel, but it was for the nations. Eventually, Israel was to reel in the nations, to bring them in. But that didn't quite happen because Israel rejected Christ. But let's go on, and we get into a passage that has caused all kinds of debate, uh, verses 15 through 18. It's a pretty straightforward passage, I believe. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men though it is only a man's covenant yet if it c- is confirmed no one annuls or adds to it Now he's going to he's going to start talking about God making a promise to Abraham and then later the law was given And his argument will be now the law can't could not have modified the promise because once you have it's translated here, a covenant, you can never alter it. You can't annul it and you can't add to it. Hey, this is Nicole McBurney jumping into the broadcast. We are out of time for today, so be sure to come back next Thursday to hear the rest of this study. To find other resources and Bible studies, be sure to go to kgov.com store. That's kgov.com store.